0: Christians know that Jesus was perfectly righteous, but sometimes he confused his contemporaries. Everybody knew he was a rabbi since he had disciples and taught the meaning of the law. But there was something about him that made it seem as if he was setting aside the law and the prophets. His lifestyle didn't always reflect the traditional Jewish interpretations of the law. For example, in their eyes, he spent way too much time with women, disregarding what the rabbis wrote in their Jewish wisdom literature. Things like, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at the last will inherit Gehenna. In their eyes, he also spent way too much time in the presence of sinners. Since the great rabbis also taught, keep thee far from an evil neighbor and consort not with the wicked. Holy men were not supposed to dine with sinners nor spend much time in the presence of women. But Jesus did both. Unfortunately, the traditions of men and Jewish wisdom literature had a major impact on the way most of the religious leaders of the first century interpreted the law. In the days of Jesus, many traditions and regulations were formed and muddied the things that were truly required from God. On Thursday evenings at Bible study, as we're going through the Ten Words, uh, better known as the Ten Commandments, those who have taught thus far have done an excellent Job stressing the goodness and the truth of the law and the Christian's need uh, for the law as a construct, as a way of life, as a way of knowing who thus is our God, as a way of knowing the way that we should spend our days in this world. If you have even spent the smallest amount of time in different Christian circles, you know that the attitudes towards the law range from one of it's all about grace. And God is nothing but grace. And, and, and we're so filled with grace that why do we even have the Old Testament? Because it's all about, if I didn't say it before, grace. And then you have the other side that says we must keep the law. We have to keep the law because in the end, God will look at how we kept the law and he will weigh the scales to see if we kept the law enough. If we follow either of those paths, we will end up in a heretical ditch. Both of those are extremes. But in the text before us today, Jesus deals with those erroneous views. So in Matthew chapter 5, here's what he says, beginning in verse 17, ending in verse 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There are three observations I want to make from our text. Uh, Observation number one, the permanence of the law. The permanence of the law. Observation number two, the significance of the law. The the significance of the law. And observation number three, the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law. Before we go any further, let us seek help from our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, we thank you that we have your precious word. We thank you that we are able to, 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 to read from scripture how we ought to conduct ourselves, to see from your word who you are and what you demand from mankind. Lord God, please help us, Lord, to, 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 to not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Father, that we may uh, follow the footsteps of your son, that we may see um, your love towards us, We thank you, Lord, this morning, and I pray that uh, you would guide me, that you would loosen my tongue to speak accurately and clearly, loudly proclaiming the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I can't count the amount of times I've either seen or heard someone use Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 as a proof text for the Christian's need to keep the law. They'll shout the first part of Jesus' words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. And they'll stop. And they'll go on and, 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 and speak loud rhetoric of how we must keep the law. If you spend any time around Hebrew Israelites, that's what they do. The law, the law, the law. And ignore the rest of the verse. I have not come to abolish them. Them, but to fulfill them, but to fulfill them. And we don't believe that Jesus ended the law. We don't, we don't teach that. We do believe he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which means he came to fulfill all righteousness by perfectly walking in obedience to the laws, commands, precepts, and statutes of God throughout his 30 plus years upon this earth whether it was through his active obedience or his, or his passive obedience. And I'll, I'll explain it like this. Think of it this way. Uh, uh, there's this term called being vested um, in different occupations. And, and what, it, what it means is there's a certain amount of time, a set amount of times established before you even got to the job that if you work amount of, uh, that amount of time, you will receive the established benefits. And once you have worked that amount of time, that those established benefits cannot be taken away, whether it's three years, seven years, or 10 years, right? Uh, you will receive what is owed to you. The rights that are yours have been settled and are absolute. No one can take them away because all of the obligations that were required were fulfilled. Once again, whether it was through his active obedience in obeying God's laws perfectly or in his passive Obedience in submitting to whatever God's laws required, Jesus met every obligation. And now, everyone, everyone who places their faith in Him, have been vested spiritually. Their rights to the benefits of heaven have been settled, and are absolute. No one can take them away. Jesus came to fulfill the law, but some have argued, yes, He came to fulfill the law. But it's the ceremonial law that he came to uh, fulfill, the moral law he left to us. That carries absolutely no weight because Jesus covered the entire Old Testament law when he used the term law and the prophets. From Genesis to Deuteronomy is considered the law. The rest are considered the prophets, sometimes Uh, You'll see a three-part division if you're reading uh, the Reformers, uh, right? They'll say the law, the prophets, and the writings, but Jesus covered it all uh, when he used the phrase law or or, or prophets Uh, because if you remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, Jesus taught those two prophets, and I will quote, everything written about himself in all the scriptures, beginning with the law of Moses and all the prophets, comprehensive. It's all covered. He didn't teach those two disciples or anyone else the rabbinical interpretations of the law or the traditions of the elders, but the law given by God to Moses and the prophets. In the upcoming verses in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus would correct the rabbinical interpretations of the law and reveal his authority by saying, you have heard, but I say to you. You have heard, but I say to you. And he said this several times concerning certain false misunderstandings of the law that the the Jewish leaders held on to. And their misunderstandings often led to legalism and hypocrisy. God willing, we'll get there in a few weeks, but when Jesus tells the people, you have heard what I say to you, he wasn't giving them a new law or modifying the old law, but rather he was explain, explaining the true significance of the law. He was more concerned with the, with the attitudes of the heart, the attitudes of the heart, as opposed to the, the, the cold and disconnected, uh, uh, disconnected legalistic mentalities many of their leaders had. They had this tendency to measure behaviors rigorously. And they placed a a high priority on meeting certain standards. How much better it is to have an attitude of the heart that's based on one's love for Christ. The person who has this type of love for Christ, when he sins a great sin, there's this incredible sorrow. It's it's as if uh, somebody shot an arrow and pierced his soul. There's this this contemplating on what they have done and how they uh, live this life so disconnected from their Savior. And it stays with them. And then they remember the cross. And they remember this was paid for at the cross. And all I have to do is repent. All I have to do is cry out, Lord, please forgive me. Please allow me to walk in righteousness. And the Lord forgives. And we move on. We don't stay in in, in this hole of of this pity party and tell everybody how terrible we are. We say, the Lord has forgiven me and he has shown me my error, the error of my ways. However, for someone who has a, a legalistic or legalistic tendencies, I should say, it's easy to overlook your own sin. They, they, they can even misrepresent truth as they're speaking to you. And then when you catch them in their misrepresentation, there's this way that they will manipulate what they said and say, oh, I misspoke. Or they'll minimize their sin. But you lie to them and see what happens. You tell them a mistruth or mi- you misspeak and then you will find out the wrath and, 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 and what comes out of them. They can even make mental Uh, statements, sometimes verbal statements and and say things to themselves like thank God I'm not like them. How could they do such a thing? I would never do anything like that. While we should examine ourselves as to whether our desires line up with Jesus' desires that examination should not only be an examination of our Actions, but also an examination of our thoughts, our intentions. What do we desire? What are we aiming for in our relationships? Our, the question I ask is, are our inner desires and delights after the things of God? In Romans chapter seven, right after Paul confesses his, his struggles with holiness for the world to, to read. And you remember when he wrote, for I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Right after he said that, you get to verse 22, uh, chapter 7 of Romans, and he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It's not only about the externals. The externals will, t- will take care of themselves If the internal is right, do you delight in the law of God in your inner being? In Psalm 119 and uh, verses 47 to 48, the psalmist said, and I want you to catch this, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. His delight was in the law of the Lord in his inner being. And I think Matthew Henry sums up the attitude the believer should have towards the law well when he wrote, the law is the Christian's rule of duty and he delights therein. If a man pretending to be Christ's disciple encourages himself in any allowed disobedience to the holy law of God or teaches others to do the same, whatever his station or reputation among men may be, he can be no true disciple. That makes sense. A disciple is a learner. And if I've been following a master mathematician for five years, and someone comes to me and says, Hey, Mike, you should be pretty good at math by now. Can you help my child? Right? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll help your child. I, I've been, I'm, a, I'm a master uh, myself, I've been with them five years. And your child, the child asks me, Hey, 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 Mike, what is five plus five? And I say, 55. <laughs> I'm not a disciple of that mathematician. And so that's all the scripture is saying. Do you delight? in the law of God, because it should be a delight. You've been changed on the inside. Everything from God is holy and pure, and it should delight us when we read the word, when we hear the word. It should be something that says uh, to us, I need to hear more. I need more. Our speech. Our level of repentance, even our willingness to forgive are all determined by our desire and delight in the law of God. And it doesn't start with the words that come out of our mouth. It begins with the heart. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what I'm, what I'm, absorb- what I'm absorbing in my heart is going to come out. Right. I can I can punch the clock on Sunday mornings, but when I when I when I punch the clock and go home and I begin speaking with my neighbor and the things that are coming out of my mouth aren't sounding biblical, they know they may not say anything to you verbally, but they know how is he talking about fill in the blank when he talked about church for two minutes because my heart is filled with things that are unbiblical and it's going to come out once again. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. Jesus is the only one who ever succeeded in keeping the whole law for his entire life. So when Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them, he was proclaiming he fulfilled the entire law in all its aspects. He he fulfilled the the, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil-slash-judicial law. What's the difference? Well, well, the moral law um, is based on God's holy nature, and Jesus kept that perfectly. This was confirmed by several authors within Scripture. We'll start with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21. He said, for our sake, that's so good, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, We might become the righteousness of God. You you have to love that. You have to love that. And then the writer of Hebrews in in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. He said, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet what? Yet without sin. And then there's the apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. He said, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus fulfilled the moral law perfectly. That's why Peter, who like John, also, and also spent about three years with Jesus, could explain in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 verses and verse 23, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's amazing. That is amazing. But not only that, Jesus also fulfilled the ceremonial law by being the embodiment of everything the ceremonial laws types and symbols pointed to. So that now, according to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, no one is able to judge us according to God's righteous standards concerning ceremonial dietary restrictions or with regard to festivals, new moons or ceremonial sabbaths all of these were shadows but the substance belongs to Christ those ceremonial shadows aren't to be worshiped or idolized because those shadows didn't pay for our sins on the cross it was a body and someone will come to you and proudly in their idolatry say i never eat pork good for you past the bacon right? More for me. You can't put that on me. That's you. And if you're doing that for health reasons, amen. But please don't try to make that as a way where I'm going to get closer to God now. It does not work like that. And finally, Jesus also fulfilled the civil-slash-judicial law by personifying God's perfect justice. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 20, Matthew quotes Isaiah concerning the passion for justice that would consume Jesus. He wrote, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. When Jesus rose from the grave, that was part one of bringing justice to victory as life defeated death. When Jesus returns, justice will receive the greatest victory as death will be no more in the new heavens and upon the new earth. Jesus then declares, in, uh, or declared in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's about the size of a comma. The dot he's referring to is like a quick, a, a quick stroke from a pen. And Jesus is saying it, is, it would be easier to remove the entire universe than to remove the smallest stroke within the Hebrew alphabet, within the law. That's why the psalmist could declare, forever, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And that's Psalm 119, uh, verse 89. The psalmist understood the permanent nature of the law, of of God's word. And if, if we were to further examine all three parts of the law, we would see the significance Of the law because the law reveals the permanent nature of God, who he is. If the law can be changed, that means God changes. But God is immutable or unchanging and so is his law. So what does that mean for the believer? For us, that means we will never be changed. We can never be or we will never be condemned, I should say. We will, we will never have this, this, this thing uh, uh, hanging over us as if I'm going to be condemned because his law says whoever believes in the Son has life. The law was fulfilled in Christ for our sake. So our salvation is settled. Our salvation is absolute. We are vested through Christ In our text, Jesus is affirming the inerrancy and absolute authority of the Old Testament scriptures. If his word can fail, then God can fail, and that is an impossibility. Jesus is also uh, affirming that we don't do away with the Old Testament just because we have the New Testament. The New Testament is, is not a supplanting of the law or the prophets, but a fulfilling of it. There are dozens of reasons why the Old Testament is absolutely necessary, but for now, I will give you two. Reason number one the Old Testament is absolutely necessary is because God's righteousness needs to be known. God's righteousness needs to be made known. God's righteousness is known by his high and holy standards throughout the Old Testament. God does not lower his standards because we're sinners. He commands we are to be holy as he is holy. We see this twice in Levit- Leviticus 11, then again in Leviticus 19, then again in Leviticus 20, Leviticus 21, and Deuteronomy 23. Be holy, be holy, as it is written, you must be holy. How consistently are we to be holy? Until we're blameless. Until we're blameless. And of course, we can't do that. I know we cannot go half a block before we fail in our attempt or attempts to be holy and blameless. So, what do we do? We bow down. We, we, we bow down before the only one who has fulfilled all the requi- righteous requirements of the law perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're unsaved right now in this building, Every saved person in this room was in your position, far away from God, yet God bridged the gap in a moment. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person One would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Every saved person in this room knows that while we were spiritually dead and filthy, incapable of doing anything to help ourselves at the right time, God showed his love towards us. It wasn't wasn't based on how good we were. In In case you missed it the first time, we were filthy. We were dead, rotten to the core. And God said, live, live. And at that moment, we were saved. The second reason the Old Testament is absolutely necessary is so man may know for certain the criteria he will be judged by on judgment day. There's a warning that we get from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 9. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Live your life, young people. Have all the fun you want, but know for certain, judgment day is coming. In the next chapter, the warning gets a little more intense. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. What's the criteria? Every deed. Open, hidden, good or evil, judgment is coming. But here's the good news, and I need you to get this. Some of you may be thinking I'm teaching some type of morality-based judgment. Some of you may be even thinking, uh, Pastor Mike is teaching the law. We have to keep the law to be saved. No, you should know better than that. I don't want you to leave here thinking that. But here's what's going to happen. On the day of judgment, when man is judged according to the law... If you believe the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly in your place, in his active obedience, then paid the penalty you should have paid through his death on the cross. In his passive obedience, you will be saved. By grace, you are saved. This is why law and grace make a perfect couple. Without the law, we wouldn't see our need for grace. We would assume everybody's going to heaven because there's no standards to be judged by. Everyone is free to do what is right in their own eyes. All who possess a saving belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, every time you fail to keep the law perfectly, that sin has already been snatched, placed upon Christ, and paid for at the cross. This is the point Paul is making in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And I'm going to ask you to turn there with me for a minute. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. It's page 984 in the Pew Bibles. There the apostle Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, with Christ. What did he he do? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Translation, God the Father punished his son on the cross for all our sins, past, present, and future. Nailed to the cross, that's salvation. That's sacrificial love for all who believe in Jesus the way the Bible says we need to believe in Jesus. On the other hand, and you knew this was coming, you've heard me preach long enough to know this was coming. For all who don't believe, for all who do not have a Bible-based belief in Jesus, the Messiah, your sins will not be blotted out. The horrifying reality is that your name will not be found In the book of life. And according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, whoever's name is not found in the book of life will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire. The lake that burns with fire. This is why he has not come to abolish, destroy, or take away. The law. This is why not one iota or not even a dot will pass from the law. This is what you will be judged by. His righteousness must be made known and his eternal righteous judgment will come to pass according to the criteria he has clearly established in his word. Even when it comes to those things that we think aren't a big deal. Judgment will still be Enforced. In the next verse, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus told them, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The least of these commandments, according to some commentators, are those things which may seem trivial, yet they're really great. From the upcoming context, it appears to be things like unrighteous anger, lusting within, uh, divorce, making oaths, and retaliation. Like when he said, you have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say that uh, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And some of you are like, angry? I get angry every day. The, question you should be, the questions you should be asking yourself is, why? Why do I get angry every day? The same people who make me mad every day, they're going to be there tomorrow. The, the, the lazy, the unfaithful, the one who hides whenever it's time to do some work, they're going to be there. Why do I get angry every day? I know the nature of man. I believe in total depravity. <clears throat> are they going to shock me one day and do something they're supposed to do? That's the first question, is why do I get angry every day? And second question is, why do I accept my anger as if Jesus is okay with it? Maybe it's because we don't think it's that big of a deal. Maybe it's something that we think that, um, well, that's not going to be brought up on Judgment Day, but Jesus said, It will be brought up. He said it is a big deal because everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He said whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying don't take it lightly concerning your anger. Your anger at your co-workers, your neighbors, your wife, your children, your husband, your friends. This anger. Why do you get angry as if you haven't received grace. If anyone should be angry it should be God at us. He hates sin. But but as it was said in the uh, Sunday school this morning we take sin lightly. We just do because God is merciful and we take his mercy for granted until the cup of his wrath is full and he lashes out with the whip, with the belt, with the tree branch. Some of you know, you remember those days, right? Go get, go get a branch from that tree right there, and we're going we're gonna to deal with that issue, that, that mouth you have. We, we're going to deal with you today, today, right? And, and then there are, are those who think little of their lusting. They'll say something like, well, I'm a human being, and human beings lust. That's just what we do. I, what, what do you want me to do? And that's taking a relaxed approach to what one considers a lesser command, especially when we see it in light of adultery, right? right? Uh, and no question, committing adultery has far greater earthly consequences than lusting in our hearts. No doubt, the destruction of marriages and broken homes through acts of adultery far outweigh the damages that occur from lusting. But Jesus says, don't sleep. Don't sleep on your lustful hearts. It's damaging. Don't take it light. He says repent. Get help if you have to, because you're going to hear from me on this. It's going to come back to you. He made it clear that lusting equates in some way to adultery. Further on, along in the text, verses 27 to 29 of Matthew 5. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone, everyone, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Have you ever heard of the phrase Eye candy. Some of you have. It's 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 an earthly, worldly phrase uh, to describe good-looking people, right? right. Uh, Men of Woodside, uh, a quick side note. The women who joined this church aren't joining because we have a lot of eye candy. I'm just putting it out there. I'm just throwing it out there, right? right. Women who joined this church love the Lord. That has to be the reason. That, that, That has to be the reason, right? But in other churches, many church seekers have adopted the ways of the world. Finding an attractive mate has climbed the list of reasons for joining a church. While finding a spouse, while, while attending church is not a bad thing, it should not be the number one reason you join a church. If, if, if a church has sound theology, which is orthodoxy, and, and loves and serves people, which is orthopraxy, and you see How you can use your gifts to strengthen and encourage the brethren there. And they happen to have someone. They happen to have someone you find attractive. Why? Because he or she loves the Lord. And they love people. They love the word of God. They're a servant. They have a servant's heart. These or those are good reasons to join a church. But seeking and joining a church because you need to find someone to do life with is never a good or god honoring idea moving on if you are you are a preacher or teacher and you're teaching it's okay to relax compromise or even disobey one of the least of the of these commandments you are also in sin since jesus not only says whoever relaxes One of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he also says those who teach others to relax one of the least of these commandments will also be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For someone to teach others it's okay to relax or even compromise on any commandments may sound unheard of to many of us. But Jesus was addressing a, a common practice of the Jewish leaders, According to uh, Maimonides, the, the rabbi and Jewish philosopher, the Sanhedrin had the power when it was convenient to make void an affirmative command and permitted men to transgress a negative command in order to return many to their religion or to deliver many of the Israelites from stumbling at other things. They justified it by saying man may do whatsoever the present time makes necessary, end quote. This is what Jesus was directly addressing. It was not acceptable to God then, nor is it acceptable to God now. When it comes to teaching, Jesus' half-brother James gives the most straightforward warning in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And what both James and Jesus are doing, they're not trying to discourage true teachers, but to warn of the seriousness of keeping the truth of the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. Meaning every word, every word form and word placement found in the Bible's original manuscripts were divinely and intentionally written. As Second Peter chapter 1 verse 21 says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Meaning, God the Holy Spirit superintended each and every one of the Bible's authors so that, and here's the amazing part, he used their own individual personalities, linguistics, uh, even their dialect and vocabulary to compose and record without error the exact words the Lord wanted them to write in the original manuscripts. With all of that care, with all of that precision, we can understand Jesus' warning and threat. Anyone who has been put into a position of teaching the word of God and directs or encourages people to alter, ignore, or compromise the word of God, either by proclamation or by example, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus declares that he will hold those in low esteem who hold his word in low esteem. But we know Jesus is not referring to the loss of salvation since the offenders will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There will be consequences for believers who disobey, discredit, or even belittle God's word. Why? Because they're misleading God's people for the most part. They're taking away from the purity of God's word. Whoever relaxes one of the least of God's commandments on purpose must have forgotten the warning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Picking up where Ecclesiastes 12, 14 left off, whether good or evil. As Jesus continues, we look at the good. He said, whoever keeps and teaches the least of the commandments, he or she will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom citizens are to uphold every part of God's law, both in their living, in their teaching, in everything they do when the word of God comes out of their mouths. True believers who delight in the law of God teach the whole counsel of God without adding or taking away anything from the law or the prophets. In Psalm 112, verse 1, the psalmist, for example, he sings out, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. That's the heart of a true believer who's been adopted into the kingdom, given this precious new life. That's why in our text, when we get to Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus warns the multitudes. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees isn't a big deal uh, to us because we get the backstory. We, we see how they really were. We understand that the majority of them were deceitful, money-loving hypocrites that conspired to kill Jesus. So exceeding their righteousness to us is not that hard. However, if you were a common Jew living in that region at that time, this would seem impossible. To the common Jew, besides the chief priest, there was none more righteous than the scribes, and the Pharisees. To them, these men taught the law accurately and had the power to cast you out of the city and the power to allow you back in. It's similar to being, to being a devout member of the Roman Catholic Church in a room with Pope Francis and 72 priests and having someone stand up, look at you, and say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Pope Francis and the priests, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? That's impossible to the Roman Catholic mind. That would have been what the multitudes who were in attendance in Jesus' day uh, were thinking. That's impossible. But what Jesus begins doing, starting with this very sermon, is to pull the layers back, uncovering their hypocritical ways. The hypocritical ways of the Jewish leaders, I should say. The scribes and the Pharisees themselves were feeling the pressure of Jesus' words as almost every part of this sermon goes on to condemn their character and their behavior. For example, in chapter 6, verse 1 of Matthew's Gospel, which is still a part of this sermon, when Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, that was a gut punch to the religious leaders Then in chapter six, once again, verse five, when Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That was another body blow to the Jewish believers, mainly Jesus continues his verbal assault as he speaks about their showy way of fasting and their love of money by laying up treasures. Then in chapter seven, he, he lands a deadly blow. In chapter seven, verses 21 to 23, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons? In your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Prophesying or, or, or teaching and casting out demons, demons were primarily done by the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew this, and the people knew this. And Jesus said, Only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. For our righteousness to exceed their righteousness does not mean our external acts of righteousness have to exceed their external acts of righteousness. Jesus is calling his followers to a, a, a more personal holiness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Merely external obedience softens the law's demands. Because you only do what you have to do. There's no love involved. They are just cold obligations being fulfilled. There's nothing that you uh, uh, do at that time because you love people or Christ. It's because it's your turn. It's because your name came up and you have to do this. That's pharisaical. God says, I've adopted you. I've brought you into my home. I've given you a place eternally. You will dwell with me. I've given you my spirit so you may think as I think. I've delivered you from hell, from Satan. I've I've, I've delivered you that he cannot work in you. He's going to try to attack from the outside with his fiery darts. But listen, I've given you a shield and I've given you me. I've given you help. Hebrews 1.14, angels are ministering spirits for those who shall inherit salvation. God has given us everything that we need. So why don't we serve him with our all? God is too good not to. And God says, hey, nothing's going to change as far as accountability The only difference is my son has paid the price you should pay for failing me. The only difference is my spirit is in you to give you the power to say no. The power to say no. Why don't we? The world is tempting. But those temptations that are ungodly are only meant to bring you harm. For those who have lived long enough, you know this. You know this. We serve out of love. Love is the fulfillment of the law, ultimately, when we see that. We serve sacrificially. And I'm going to end with this. There was this young man who was getting counseling. And the counselor went out of his way to make sure this man uh, wouldn't have to deal with life on his own. He sacrificially gave up his time. And when the young man seemed to be able to fly, to be able to go forward in the power of God, the strength of the Lord and his might. The counselor says, okay, okay. now I want you to go and do that for someone else. And the counselor, the young guy, said, you know what, God is going to bless you for sacrificially helping me. And the counselor tells him, you know what, if, 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 if God blesses me for helping you, good. But that's not why I do it. I do it because God has already sacrificially blessed me. God has already given me more than I deserve out of love. That's why I do what I do, and I'm asking you to do the same thing for someone else. Out of love, sacrificially, use whatever God has given you, whatever gifts, talents, abilities, whatever riches, whatever he has given you. Be a channel to give to someone else. That's why I do what I do. And God is telling the masses on this great day out of the greatest of sermons to me, make it personal. Make it personal. Do it from sacrifice. Do it from from even heartache. Do it because you know it's right. Do it because it has been done to you. Praise the Lord God. And Lord willing, as we move further, in this great sermon on the mount, we will see these things come out more and more through the life of Christ and through his words. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much, Lord, that you have uh, blessed us more than anyone could possibly bless us. You have done what no one could do, Lord God, and we thank you. You are amazing in, in your love towards us, Lord God. May our acts of service never be some external type of of works where we're trying to gain our righteousness before you. That can only lead to hypocrisy, empty religion, bickering and complaining and moaning. Why do I have to do that? No, Lord, let it be because we owe you. We're in debt to you and we know it. And then let that turn into gratefulness and let that gratefulness turn into love, sacrificial love. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.